All right, guys, welcome back to the podcast. I have Emily with me, and Emily, is it Napic or Knitter, or which one is it? <laughs> it's Knitter. Yes, I'm, Knitter. I'm in the middle of a name change. So Okay, understood. So yeah. Emily Knitter, who is a psychology PhD student, uh, former Army, and she's here today to talk kind of the emotional side of military transition. And I think it's a really big topic. It's something that maybe we don't discuss enough, but um, it's a really, really great thing. So Emily, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. I'm excited to be here. Yes. So tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what you're doing right now briefly, and then we'll get into you know your military uh, days and transition and all that. Yeah, absolutely. So right now I am in my third year of a PhD program. I'm up at the University of Buffalo, which is in New York. Um, shipping away at that. Yeah. And I was, I was in the army for five years. I'm sure we'll talk more about that, but that's the very brief synopsis of me at the moment. So uh, what did you do in the army? When did you, when did you go in? what did you do? Yeah, absolutely. So ironically with the position that I'm in now, um, I joined the army delayed entry, uh, summer before my senior year of high school, because, um, are we allowed to cuss? here sure. do you have any sure okay. <laughs> i fucking hated school <laughs> and i swore <laughs> i was never gonna go to college in my life <laughs> and i had no clue what i wanted to do though um so i was actually looking into the peace corps and i got cold called by the recruiters like we all did in high school and you know they asked if they could come over and talk to me and i'm like sure whatever i never considered it um, but the one thing that I was enjoying in my life at the time is I was writing for the school newspaper. And okay. so when the recruiters came and talked to me, the thing I liked about the army was that you could pick your job before you went in. We're like, yep. from, from what I understand, I don't know if it's changed. Um, this was back in 2008, but at that point, the army was the only branch that you could pinpoint specifically what job you were going to do. Um, and so I found out I could be a journalist in the military and I had no better options and it kind of came together first. So I said, screw it and enlisted. And they gave me the option for four or five or six years and five seemed like the middle number. <laughs> so that was my entire logic. Not a lot of thought went into it. Um, but yeah, so so I, it's a 46 Quebec. So it was a public affairs specialist is really what they called us. But journalist was kind of the easiest translation for people not familiar with PAO. Okay. Um, yeah. That was how I got into the army. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. So I went in, well, I did all my paperwork in 2004 and that yeah. was back when the air force was still letting you pick your job. But I was like, I came in on like the tail end of it before they really started okay. cracking down on, okay, now if you want to choose, you got to choose from a list. These are the ones we need. Mm -hmm. So I, okay. I was on like the tail end of getting to choose and on the very, very beginning of, Hey, here's the list. Cause that's the first thing that they handed to me when I was down at maps and they were like, Hey, what do you want to do for your job? Or you want to go in open general, whatever. And my recruiter yeah. and my brother-in-law told me, Hey, make sure you pick a job and stick to it and get it written into your contract. So I that's chose um, one off the list, which was medical logistics and supply chain management. And I picked that, you know, being in the hospital, being in medical, I thought, well, medical is always going to be around. It would be great. At the time when I joined, I was in a mind frame of doing four years and getting out. Yeah. So, were you in high school or how old were you? No, I was just a couple years out of high school. I went to two years okay. of college before I finally said, hey, this isn't working either. Um, Got it. 
So I had it guaranteed into my contract when I went. So that's what I did for 12 and a half years and uh, best decision of my life. But like I said, at the time, I was going to do four years and get out. Um, that changed, mm-hmm. obviously. I, I loved it so much that I stayed in. But um, I've, I've worked with public affairs a lot in my civilian job. So um, I certainly understand what you guys do and what it's all about. So I think it's really cool that you did journalism in the Army. But you have to tell me what one, like, tell me a really cool story about your job in the army having to do with public affairs, journalism or whatever. Cool story. So actually I went, you know, basic AIT. Um, I was stationed at Fort Stewart in Georgia. And when I got to Stewart for in-processing, um, they basically told me to not even bother unpacking my bags because my brigade was already deployed to Iraq. So they had just left. This was the beginning of January. They had just left in December. And they're like, yeah, so I, I did a little you know, crash course pre-deployment training for two weeks. And then I was on a plane to Baghdad. Um, so I'm like 19. I don't know anybody in the unit. And there's a couple of random people who were in Rear D that I trained with. And then we flew over. Um, I just learned how to use a camera three months before that, you know, barely any clue of what I'm even doing for anything related to public affairs. Um, and in March, so this is 2010, um, March was the first, uh, free elections, the, for the national elections in Iraq. And so we're in Baghdad. Um, and, how it worked during deployments is I just kind of fob hopped throughout the entire deployment. And I just kind of went out with whatever unit was doing something interesting within the full capacity of the brigade. So, you know, we did a lot of humanitarian aid drops that year. We did a lot of weapons cache searches, you know, different things like that. And so I got attached to, so I was first brigade third ID. um, And I got attached to five, seven cab for this unit to go out and they were just kind of providing security for all the polling stations. Um, so we were out really, really early that morning and the whole day is amazing, but my camera is malfunctioning. You know, I barely know what I'm doing. I think I have a couple of good pictures. We got some good stories and I'm recording, doing an interview with one of the um, ISF generals and you can hear an IED go off in the background of my recording. You know, we didn't have any small arms fire. It was actually kind of a quiet year from what I did with that. Um, but, you know, pictures of the polling stations. There was a house that had gotten bombed, and we got to kind of observe and help out with the rescue mission. They were able to pull the entire family that was in the house out from the rubble. Everyone survived. So it was like, it was a pretty feel good day. Um, but we got back, I was primarily, primarily at FOB Falcon. Um, and we get back to Falcon and find out that there had been a directive that no non-essential personnel were supposed to be outside the wire that day. So 19 year old baby me (laughs) (laughs) ended up being the only PAO in all of Baghdad. And I think possibly all of Iraq for the army that day. So the couple piece of shit pictures that I managed to take got briefed like all the way up the chain because they didn't have anything else. So, you know, everybody knew who little like PV2 knitter was for a day. 
Right. Um, and I think I just kind of peaked there and it was, you know, that was like the most exciting thing it was all downhill the rest of my contract. But yeah, that was a, that was a fun day. <laughs> what was it like when they told you when you got back and you heard that? What, like, what was the feeling of that? I think I was just, I panicked because I didn't feel competent. You know, I mean, the whole day was great. I had a wonderful experience that day. Um, but I was just really nervous that it was yeah. my first real mission and that yeah. was going to be like... You weren't even supposed to be there in the first place. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. A little spooky. A little, yeah, so it worked out, thankfully. Um, yeah, but that was Very an cool. interesting story. Yeah. So flash forward a handful yes. of years, um, you decide to get out of the Army. What went into that decision? Yeah. So actually I didn't, um, I was medically retired. Okay. Me too. And yeah. So I, so third ID, I mean, for, I'm sure it was probably comparable for most units in this time frame. is, I mean, we were just deploying every other year. And yeah. so there wasn't a High lot of tempo. Yeah. The ops tempo was insane. Um, you know, and so as soon as we got back from Iraq, we got fenced in because we were going to go to Afghanistan. Um, and so not having any training before going into Iraq, I was actually kind of happy, um, (laughs) to get some like lead up before Afghanistan. And because of my job, I went to JRTC once, um, in May in Polk, which is already boiling hot enough and miserable oh, yeah. as oh, yeah, it is. It is. And did the full full training cycle in my role as PIO. So I'm covering everybody else going through the training. But like for the most part, I'm kind of doing it as well because I'm there with them. Um, but then because admin, paperwork or whatnot, I had to go back again to formally be approved that I went through the training. So I did JRTC oh. twice, one in May, and then I went back in August and did it again. Well, at least you kind of had the answers to the tests before you went. I mean, that was... That's true. I mean, but the test isn't hard. It's the surviving the humidity and the mosquitoes. That's what I'm saying. You went back in August? I know. Yeah. It was not fun. Um, I feel like I really paid my dues. And I was, frankly, you know, excited to actually go. Um, I'd say you paid your dues going there twice. Yeah. Surviving humidity. I feel like I did. Um, but anyway, they, I was getting blood work done for something else about a month before we were supposed to deploy and they found out my thyroid was fucked up. And while they're adjusting medication, you can't deploy. And so I found out literally three days before they sealed the Connexes that I wasn't deploying. And so I had to go and like pull all my stuff out. And so I ended up being rear D for that entire year. Um, But the medication they put me on triggered this weird one in a million thing of, I developed a heart problem and I couldn't do cardio and the army couldn't figure out what exactly was wrong. Um, And so after a year and a half, like everybody went on the deployment, I was rear D for the whole deployment, came back, still didn't know what was wrong. And finally they're like, "Mm, we don't know what to do with you. You got to go. So I got med boarded. Um, And that was year four of my contract. So I was just almost in the window to start thinking about whether I was going to re-enlist or, you know, kind of what I wanted to do. But then this happened. So I never even 
had an opportunity to decide whether or not I would have stayed in. Um, To this day, I I don't know what I would have done. Yeah. Um, And that, that piece actually was interesting for me because when we talk about the transition, um, because especially, you know, in the PAO role, there's three or four public affairs people for an entire brigade. Um, We're always up in headquarters. You know, it's a very atypical army experience. Like the brigade commanders knew me by name. Um, It was very like, you know, I ended up as E5 before I got out. Um, But even as, you know, private knitter, all the, you know, battalion commanders knew who I was. Like I was in a very privileged position for the army. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think because of that, I always had this vision of myself as Emily who happens to be in the army, not so much as like private knitter, sergeant knitter, whoever I was in that at that time. Um, And so I didn't think that the military had a big impact on my identity. Um, So when they found out that I was going to get out or when I found out I was going to get out, um, I was going to like, okay, well, now I'm going to yeah. go figure out what I'm going to do next. Like, no big deal, really. Yeah. Um, and so I went through the whole med board process. It wasn't a massive, like, emotional time for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got out. And, and I was like, oh, this is no big deal, no big deal. And so I remember walking out of the building when I, the day I got my DD-214. Um, and I started crying. And I was like, I don't know what the fuck this is about. And I'm like, we're just going to shove this down. Like we're going to ignore that feeling. That's that's yeah. Yeah. Nope. Got in my truck and we're fine. (laughs) Not thinking about that. Um, so yeah, so that was a big, like the first indication, you know, that I probably should have thought a little bit more about what it meant to be losing, you know, the uniform really. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you, you know, I, I went through, it. no, you, you just don't, don't mm-hmm. you just don't realize it until it's gone. I mean, I've met tons of people who are like, you know, my attitude was I'm getting out of the Marine Corps. I'm getting out of the Air Force or whatever it may be. And then do nothing but look back, you know? Yeah. So, and it's, it's tough, you know, and, and a lot of people don't understand it, but I mean, even in your situation where maybe you didn't feel so much as you know army as you maybe should have or could have and you know that dd214 is still i mean it's it's weird when when most people get fired from their job or they get let from go from their job or they leave their job they don't give them any paperwork they just say there's the door but when I, you get out of the military they, they give you a piece of paperwork that says you can't come back <laughs> 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 and that is as cool as it is to hold that in your hand and say, I, you accomplished something with that 214. Mm-hmm. You also look at it and go, that, that day is, that, those days are over. I, I, yeah. can't, I can't go back. I mean, on very, very, very rare occasions, you know, can you go back to active duty? You know, um, I'm course guard and reserve, you know, they get two fourteens all the time, depending upon what they did and, you know, being on active duty and getting off and all that. But you want your active duty and you get off and you get that two fourteen. most of the time that means you're done. 
Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's a different kind of feeling when you have that. It is. And I think that the other thing that really that moment I pinpoint looking back is when I felt it, but it didn't click until a couple months later. Um, but for me, it felt like the day that I drove off post. I mean, it's like you're standing at a train station and that train's gone and you're just left in a cloud of dust. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, the army keeps rolling, the military keeps rolling. And it, for me, you know, it feels like they kind of forget about you. You know, like I lost oh, almost yeah. instantly connection with almost everybody who was yep. still active. Um, you know, and it's part of the, it's, ne- I think it's necessity in a way, you know, it's, it's yeah. a big part of, you know, just how the military is designed. Um, but yeah, I didn't anticipate that feeling where it's, I mean, your whole life as you knew it, you know, especially me, like I came in at 18, I was almost 24 when I got out and that was me, yeah, you know, and my life. whole world was just gone. Yeah. We don't um, realize it because they, they tell us so much that, you know, this is the mission. We're all part of the mission, you know, and you yeah. feel, you feel part of the mission. And then when you step away from the mission, you realize, well, the mission doesn't stop because Emily or Jeff left. The mission mm-hmm. keeps rolling. And mm-hmm. that's hard for, you know, anybody to realize, but especially, you know, people who didn't serve. And then they have to, you try to explain that to them. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, no, you don't understand. You, when you walk away from AutoZone, you know, <laughs> AutoZone don't care, you know. Right. Um, and you don't care about AutoZone. You know, maybe yeah. you have some good memories of it, but you're not concerned about AutoZone. You know, for vet, for a lot of veterans, you know, you, you used to look at the Army a certain way. I used to look at the Air Force a certain way, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I, I worked at a video store when I was in high school and into college. I don't look back at that and go, man, I wish that place was still open. I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> I could care less. In fact, it's closed and I'm happy that it's closed. You know, so, yeah. I mean, it's a different uh, transitioning out of the military is a little different. Um, yes. It's, it's just a yeah. lot different. So what no, did you really do? Is. What did you do when you left? You know, you transitioned, you got your 214, you're kind of yeah. realizing, oh, I'm 24. What's going on with the world? What did you, what was yeah, next? So, so I was, I was a good little soldier. I went through ACAP, um, you know, and so of course, you know, when you go through that, you either have to decide in that moment, whether you're going to like look for a job or whether you're going to go to school because there's no other choices that you have beyond like straight down those paths. Um, so I decided I was going to go back to school. Um, frankly, just because I had no clue what I wanted to do and I could use my GI bill and I could get paid, um, was really like, it provided a soft landing in a way for me. Um, I was dating somebody at the time who, so I was still, I was at Fort Stewart, my entire contract. Um, And so I needed to stay in Savannah to kind of see where the relationship went. And so I knew nothing about colleges, how to apply, how to decide where to go, because I didn't pay attention to any of that shit in high school because I was going to go to the army and I was never going to go to college anyway. (laughs) So (laughs) um, yeah, I figured because I was public affairs, my entire logic was I knew I didn't want to be a journalist outside of the military because the hours were terrible and they got paid shit money. Um, So my logic 
was the only other option was for me to go into marketing. I don't know why I made that decision, but I decided that was what I should do. And so then I found on Google that it was important that the college you went to had a, like the certain accreditation for business programs, you know, and and that mattered. So there was one school in Savannah that had a marketing program and was accredited through whatever it was. Um, And so I'm like, okay, I applied online, never went to the school, nothing. They accepted me and I started classes. Well, I went to orientation the week I was on terminal leave, like the first week. So I rolled straight from, you know, the military, not even technically out yet into class. Um, you know, coming from spending my entire adult adult life in the military, you know, I, I appreciate structure. I appreciate, um, communication and clarity. And I went to orientation and I needed to get an ID. So they had like the ID office and then they're like, okay, go wait in this classroom across the hallway. And then, you know, when it's your turn, you can come and get your like ID card. Like, okay, go in there. There's some 19-year-old sophomore chick conducting, you know, the whole room, keeping it organized, allegedly. But (laughs) she had no system for how people were deciding, like, what order they were going over there. She was just arbitrarily picking people. Mm -hmm. And she was picking her friends first. And I was sitting there grinding my teeth for about an hour. Other people were there longer than me. Um, Before I spoke up, I'm like, hey you know, trying to be helpful. Like, you know, what would be really good as if maybe we kind of moved seats or we did a sign-in sheet (laughs) or something. Um, Really trying to suppress my my anger. Right. Um, And she basically told me to fuck off. Okay. (laughs) And so I sat there for another moment and then I spoke up again. Um, And so I'm not an aggressive person at all. Like, not into combatives, not, you know, pugils are fun and basic, but that was about it. Like, I'm not a fighter. Almost got into a fist fight with this bitch. Excuse me. Wow. <laughs> and finally, I think she let me go get my ID just to get me out of the room. Um, so I still have a photo of that ID. And it's funny now looking at it because I'm so pissed off in my photo for that school. And I think that was had a lot more kind of meaning (laughs) as I look back now than I realized at the time, because frankly, that was my experience the whole first year I got out, you know, and I was angry Mm -hmm. so much. And I, but you know, when that stuff came up, kind of like when I got my DD 214, I was just like, Hmm, that's a weird feeling. Well, we're not going to think about that right now. Like I need to go do X and Y and Z because this is what I'm doing now. And so I just discredited everything that I was experiencing. I didn't think about it. I didn't try to figure out why I was feeling that way. I just kind of shoved that shit down and then kept carrying on with, you know, class assignments with whatever I needed to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and it got for about six months. Like it really, you know, I, I was able to kind of ignore it um and keep going and the guy I was seeing at the time we broke up um 
I had also started working as a hostess at this restaurant near my apartment. Um, we had gotten this apartment, you know, thinking that we were both going to be splitting the rent. I had taken over all of the bills. Um, I was absolutely miserable in school. I didn't make any friends. The school did not have any support for veterans there. Um, so I felt extremely isolated. Um, this was also, so this is 2014. Um, so this was when a lot of the, um, there was a lot of tension. So it was also a predominantly, uh, and historically black college. Um, and I'm, nobody has, you know, will be able to see my video, but I'm, I'm white and I'm coming from a military background. My ex was a state trooper. Um, so this is around the time of Michael Brown and a lot of those tensions really rising. Um, and I didn't have a good way to have healthy conversations about that. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I came into one of the first classes I came into and the professor had the syllabus broadcast up on the screen and it was a photo of Michael Brown and he spent the entire first class saying, what did the police do wrong? And it was like, I'm sitting in the back class, I'm just grinding my teeth. Um, and not only was it really hostile for first responders, you know, in a lot of the classes, then it was, they, they tended to be very negative towards military as well. And, and nobody knew that I was military. I did not self-identify. Um, and so there's just a lot of tension. I'm really, really not enjoying being in school. Um, we break up. I take over all these bills. I'm actually on paper making more money than I did in the military. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm completely living paycheck to paycheck, just like not enjoying a single piece of my life. Um, and, I, and I hit a point where I'm like sitting on my bed in my apartment, <clears throat> excuse me, um, crying and I, and I'd call my dad and I'm like, something has to change. You know, I don't even know what that looks like. Um, but like, I can't keep doing this. Like, right. Nothing is good right now. Um, and that was a big moment for me. You know, I, I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, but I, I'd made a decision that I was going to do something and that I couldn't just keep ignoring everything that was wrong. And that's that make or break moment that so many veterans yeah. have. And unfortunately we lose, I don't know if the 22 a day figure is still true, but mm -hmm. you know, we lose people every day because at that moment, like what you had, you know, there's either, Hey, I'm going to get up and I'm going to change something about this or, yeah there's a, a sense of loss and, and they give up and they mm -hmm. turn to the dark side and, you know, they do something stupid like end their life or, or fall, mm -hmm. succumb to drugs and alcohol and they just go down that dark path. And that is a tough, tough spot to be in. And even my transition, my transition wasn't bad at all. I really can't complain. But, you know, you have that moment where, you, you realize it's over. The 214 is in your hand. You're signing up for VA healthcare. You're signing up for all these other things because you no longer have these military benefits. And you mm -hmm. realize a door is closed. It's slammed closed. It's locked, dead bolted. You know, it's a, it's a dark time. It is a very, very dark time. 
and nobody from the DOD is calling you. Nobody's calling say, hey, Emily, hey, Jeff, how you doing? It's been six months. We haven't heard from you. Hope transition's going on. Nobody does that. No. The VA well, the is supposed is... to, but they nobody don't. calls. They don't. Nobody calls. You can't even organize the people who are, yeah, no, we'll, <laughs> I'm going to pause on that little whole another, Yeah, whole other subject, um, but yeah. Yeah, but, but I think the, the big thing to kind of build on that is at that time, so I was, I did really well in the military. I got promoted really quickly. Like I knew, okay, this is what I need to do. Great. I can play by these rules. Like I can get this shit done and I got fucking rewarded for it. And like, I was good, you know, and especially being 19 in Iraq, you know, all my friends are in college. They're posting about going out drinking. They're not doing anything with their lives from my perspective, you know, being all high and mighty (laughs) doing big things. Um, And I felt like I was so far ahead, you know, like I thought I was an adult, like I knew what I was doing, you know, and I couldn't figure out why I had done so well in the military. And then I just felt like I was failing at everything when I got out. And I also, I was not in contact with other veterans at this time. I thought it was just me. Like, I thought I was the only one that was failing. It feels like it. And so I didn't, and you don't want to, you don't want to reach out to anybody because you don't want to admit that like, you're the weak link, you know, like, why can't I, why can't I be better right now? I should be fine. I need to be able to figure this out. Cause that's what they teach you in the army is like, you don't have the answer. Go fucking figure it out. Yep. Um, and I was trying and I just was getting worse and worse and worse. And I thought I was alone. And that's the big thing, you know, with getting out is, okay, yeah, nobody's calling you after you get out, but nobody tells you that this happens before you get out. Mm-hmm. And that's like, to this day, just makes me so angry. Cause I'm like, even if nobody had contacted me at that point, if at some point during the transition process, you know, even an ACAP with as some of the things are useful, you know, I, I've heard it's changed a lot. Um, but if they had even mentioned like, Hey, this is kind of how you might experience your feelings. And like, this is what we've learned from veterans is kind of like what's normal. And just said like, just expect, you know, this, if you start feeling down, you know, like for me, I mean, it just feels like I fell off a cliff. Yeah. And it's like, hey, but that's the more veterans that I've talked to now, you know, and, and that's been a big impetus that we'll, you know, we'll, we'll probably get to <laughs> maybe um, about why I do what I do now is it's normal. Yeah. Like everybody goes through some variation yep. of that experience, 100%. you know, and it's normal. Not only is it normal for the transition out of the military, it's normal for life transitions across the fucking board. Yep. You know, it's yeah. the same Very thing true. if you have a big career shift, if you retire, if you, you know, you go to college, like yeah. from high school, it's having it's exciting for a little bit. You have a honeymoon period, you have a kid, anything, yep. and then you're going to like crash at yep. some point because it's a big life change and you're going to crash hard and you're going to hit what they call kind of a crisis point. There's research on this. I have it 
on the headline of my LinkedIn profile because when I found it, I'm like, holy shit, like they made a graph for me, you know? And then from that crisis point, you know, like we talked about, there's people who feel so hopeless and feel so alone that they don't reach out. And that's, that is where we get the suicide rates, unfortunately from, but then there's the, you know, what do you do from there? You know, do you try to figure out how to change things and get help and talk to people and kind of rise back out from that? Um, or, I mean, you can float in that shit place for the rest of your life if you want to, and people do. Um, mm-hmm. It's not ideal. It's, it's tough. Like, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. So, you know, I think we've done a really good job as a veteran community grabbing each other. Um, yeah. I think it's hard to do when somebody gets out and you grab them and say, and you want to shake them and say, hey, this is important. Listen to me. Mm-hmm. But I think it's hard to do that one because you got to know when they're getting out and you got to know when to grab them and you got to have a really big network so that anybody who gets out of the military, you can grab a hold of. But two, they have to want to be helped. And that's tough yeah. because we're tough people by trade because the military teaches us to be tough and to be resilient and to kind of mm-hmm. hide some of those feelings. And now we're in a world, or especially now, you know, this world, this society that we're in now is very feeling heavy, you know? Um, yes. And, you know, what, regardless of what your opinion about that is and woke culture and all that nonsense, you know, um, there, there's a lot of emotions in the world right now. So now you're entering into a society that, you know, almost to a degree overly cares to the point of almost not caring unless it fits their narrative. Like it's very, very difficult now. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been out for five years now. I can't imagine getting out of the military now and looking at society. They don't understand you one and two half of it, if not more, doesn't want to, they only want to fit, you know, they only want to understand what fits their narrative. So Mm -hmm. the big, open embracing arms don't exist as much anymore, you know, and the veteran community has kind of, you know, stepped up and, and done some of that, but it's not the fix all and it's not going to capture everybody. You know, we still have veterans committing suicide every day, you know, it's still there. Um, but I think we've done a good job of trying. Cause I mean, in what I've learned, the biggest thing I've learned in the five years I've been out is nobody is going to help us better than ourselves. I have yet to meet an organization or an individual not associated directly with the military that took care of me better than fellow veterans and fellow veteran type of organizations. I just haven't. Maybe I haven't found it yet, but I just haven't. I think we understand ourselves better than anybody else does. That's kind of like and I would say this, I hope any, anybody who's listening, whether you're active duty, you're a veteran, you're a military spouse, like what Emily said a little bit ago, you know, she was afraid to reach out. Listen, that has to stop. The minute you realize you're retiring, you're transitioning, I don't care if you're active duty or you're a spouse or, you know, girlfriend, whatever you may be, go find people that you have that in common with. There's tons of places out there you can go to. 
and people to ask for help, and they're doing it without judging. Oh, mm-hmm. you're transitioning? Hey, brother, let me help you. Come over here. When are you guys getting out? Start giving me the details. You're, uh, I'd be willing to bet you'll feel more overwhelmed with what they'll want from you than you will anything else because they're going to want to know information so they can help because transition yeah. is tough. And that's what you're focusing on now is the emotional, right. psychological side of the transition. So what are you, what are you up to now? What, what does that involve? Yeah. So, so the big shift for me came after I had that breakdown point where I was like, okay, something's got to change. I, I started applying to schools all over the country, like places that I thought would be cool to live. Um, and out of the blue, actually my former NCO calls me. So I'm in Georgia at the time. And he goes, have you ever considered moving to New York? And I was like, "Mm, no, (laughs) like it's cold up there. Like, no, thanks. Um, And he said, listen, you know, he was working at a YMCA up here, needed a marketing assistant. So kind of fed into what I thought I wanted to do. Um, He's like, you know, but he had gotten medically retired as well. And he's like, I just really want people that I trust on my team here. Um, And because I had no fucking clue what I wanted to do, I knew I just needed a reset. I said, screw it. Okay. Moved to New York. Like a month later, packed up all my shit, came up there. Um, the job sucked. I, I was only there for a year, but it was the biggest change because it was the first time I got back around another veteran um, and one who he had known me for years. And when I got up there after a couple of months, he came and he sat down and he's like, listen, he's like, I've been seeing this therapist at the VA. Um, she's helped me a ton. He's like, I really think that you should talk to her. Um, and I didn't realize at the time. So I am a very happy go lucky person in general. Like I've gotten a lot of people recently. I reconnected with a couple people from the deployment who were like, I don't know how you were so happy the whole deployment. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'm just generally a pleasant person, I think. Right. And I was still angry all the time. I would start crying for no reason. I was self isolating in this job where I would just work for 12 hours a day. I'd have my own office. I could shut the door and not talk to anybody. And it was great. But, and I didn't realize how much I changed because it had come on so gradually since I'd gotten out. And it took him saying something for me to recognize that maybe I did need help. Um, and so I started seeing this therapist through the VA stars aligned. She was amazing. Um, I went and met with her once and she put me in her emergency lunch slot every single week for the next year. Like clearly recognized that, you know, I I needed help more than I did. Um, and yeah, I'm still on therapy to this day. It's been some amazing people that work at the VA. The VA gets a really bad rap and sometimes I even bad mouth them out of frustration. But Mm -hmm. I've had two therapists in my five years through the VA that were outstanding, absolutely outstanding. And I don't know where they're getting these people from, but that seems to be one of the one things that they're doing correctly is that, at least from my perspective, others might have differing Mm -hmm. opinion, but I've had two that really changed my life and opened my eyes up to things that I did not see, you know? And I think that that is a game changer. Completely. Yeah. I mean, two biggest, so my NCO, Chris Blakesley, and then my therapist, Tanya, were like hands down the biggest influences in shifting my life after I got out. Um, and so after I worked with her and I realized I didn't want to keep doing what I was doing at the Y, 
um, you know, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I thought, you know, if I could make a third of the difference for somebody else, like how she did for me, that that felt like a worthwhile way to spend my time. Um, and so there was another university I, because I learned what I did from Georgia, I actually went and visited schools around me in New York beforehand. I asked about their veteran services. Um, you know, I really kind of looked at who actually gave a shit about us when I was deciding where to go to school in a way that I just didn't know to do the first time when I enrolled. And so I ended up at this private university about 20 minutes from my house at the time that was really pushing an initiative to get more veterans in the door to be more supportive. They just developed a whole new veteran support center. Um, and that was massive for me. So not only were they kind of doing this big push, they were trying to get the SVA, so the Student Veterans of America club that most universities have kind of off the ground more. And I jumped in just like grabbing at straws. It's like, it felt so good to be back around other veterans again. And so I ended up be, just because nobody else wanted to be, I ended up becoming the president of the SBA the first year that I was there. Um, and so I'm talking to veterans again and I'm sharing kind of my experience. And to this, like to this point, this is three years later after I got out two years, something around there, two to three years later, I still didn't realize that I wasn't alone in my like crisis point. Um, I'd kind of been starting to climb back out of it with the help of Chris and, and the therapist and whatnot, but I still didn't know that that wasn't a unique experience. Um, and so that was a huge turning point for me. So St. Bonaventure University is where I went that I'm talking to veterans and we've all gotten out at different times. We were all in for different periods of times. We we're all over the country, very different people. And every single person had almost an identical story. You know, details are different, but the emotions were the same. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, this is interesting. So I'm, I decided to go, you know, I'm in a psychology undergrad, you know, bachelor's program. Um, but I didn't know what I wanted to do with it when I first started. I just, you know, kind of vaguely wanted to go in that direction. Um, so I start writing my papers in class about veteran transition and kind of this emotional side of it. And I'm not finding anything. There's just not, I mean, little bits of pieces here and there, but there's just not a lot being talked about. And so that kind of became my mission in undergrad was like, okay, let me see if I can find anything else about this. Let me learn more about it. Like what is really going on here? And, you know, was able to graduate and amazingly, I also, I think, you know, talking about that division with military and, you know, civilian people, um, there's absolutely a difference there of, you know, people who, who've also been in the shoes who can truly understand where you are coming from. Um, but I think for me and the research that I've been doing since then and kind of, you know, how many tons of people I've talked to since then, I think there's also a component of, you're talking about this whole feelings thing and everybody's too almost overly touchy feely now if you fit into their box. Um, the military, the best way that I describe it is they basically chop your head off from your body. You know, we are trained to execute. You have to be able to operate under fire. You know, if the person next to you gets killed, you have to be able to keep going. 
you know, you, you know, and it's, and that's just the reality. Like it's necessary for combat operations to be thinking completely analytically. Um, but in order to, in, so a new thing that I've been digging into more lately and it's, I'm still working on how to best explain it. So part of acculturation into the military, um, and it's something that like threw me on my ass for a long time when I first started learning about it. Um, so I should probably put that disclaimer, (laughs) frankly, before I say anything is from the get go, you know, it is the purpose of the military to, or like basic training even, um, to simultaneously make you reliant and connected to the people that you serve with while also keeping you distant enough that you're not fully bonded with those people. So that way, you know, if they do die, you can keep fighting. It's not going to cripple you, you know, and they do this by, you know, you, you do so much in training that builds that camaraderie, that builds that connection, you know, that makes you reliant on the people to your left and your right. But they also have competition infused into everything you do. Like you're still competing with these people who are also supposed to be like your brothers and sisters. Um, And even, so I, I found this paper, it was published in 1978 by these guys, Arkin and Dufrovsky. Um, and, and they're talking about the underlying components of basic training and, and how things work. And, you know, and they said, like, even down to the way the culture is where, you know, you are like, don't show weakness. I'm going to call you a little bitch. Like, you better be tough. Like, even those types of things that discourage vulnerability. Yeah. Um, and the reason that everybody lives on post. So they keep you insulated. They keep you away from the civilian community. The reason we even call them civilians is to create this like us against them mentality. Hmm. But you also have us against us because it's like, okay, I need to get promoted. And if I don't get promoted above you and like, I'm not beating you, eventually I'm going to get kicked out if I can't like be better and I can't keep going. And it's this very cutthroat, intentional way that prevents true deep emotional connection Mm -hmm. um and it like i said i'm still you know it's it's a broad brush generalization like obviously we have people you know especially i think particularly i see it a lot in um people who deploy with each other you know that kind of gets past that barrier you know, most of the people who still stay connected after they've gotten out of the military from the individuals that I've talked to, it's, you know, it's the people in your platoon specifically, you know, or like yeah. your small group that you deployed with um, are the ones you still stay in contact with because you you got past that. Yeah, you, you tend to spend a little more time other than just work time yeah and you see you get you get the real person you can break down that that you can break through that barrier a little bit and you establish a little bit more of an emotional uh connection with them so whether you like it or not it does happen um yeah no absolutely and that's um 
and so it's like it's it's almost even heavy for me to talk about still because I'm still trying to like reconcile it with myself and kind of the, the impacts that it's had um but I think it's a big piece that keeps you disconnected when you get out it's because we do you know we have this internalized us versus them mentality that there's no way civilians are going to understand what you know who we are or what we're thinking and a big piece of connecting with other people at a deep level is you know taking a step back from that is needing to a be able to even understand what the fuck's going on in your own body in your own emotions because if you don't understand there's no way you're going to be able to communicate that to somebody else to then be able to get them to understand to therefore then they can kind of connect with you you know like there's this whole process that goes into building connections with other people and it starts internally and we're not given that language we're almost withdrawn from that language in the military like you're not we're not getting any training on how to connect with your emotions you know (laughs) yeah and you know we have mental health you know for in the military and it's there for a reason Mm -hmm. i wish they could figure out a way of getting mental health out of out of the chain of command out of the military because people are afraid to go to it because you can see even though they say this is a trustworthy place, you can come here, you know, blah, blah, blah. If you say something, they can still report it back okay. to your chain of command. And, and and rightfully so, because there are things that could be said that they need, that need to be reported to protect yourself, uh, protect the health and safety of people around you, yourself, family members, et cetera, et cetera. I totally get that. The problem is that is a breach of the trust. So people are then, they don't walk into the room ready to spill the beans. They walk into the room cautious, yeah. you know, and Perfect. that, okay. that, that stops a lot. That stops mm-hmm. a lot, especially when there's so many things for your job, you know, on the line, you know, and like you said, we have a, we have a dose of competition. We're trying to get promoted. We're trying to further our careers. Everybody's trying to get to 20 years because, you know, that's the magic number. So you can collect retirement and all that. Now that they've fixed the military retirement system where you can still walk away with a good, you know, good retirement benefits and and things are starting to change. It's still not there yet. You know, so there's still a whole lot of competition to try to make it a career and try to do something. Um, so you don't get left behind on a deployment. So you don't get left behind on an assignment. So you don't get denied for things, you know, and mental health is supposed to be that place you go talk to and they, they help build you. You know, that's how I like to tell people counselors and psychologists and all those folks are there to help build you. Don't, don't think negatively of them, but we've built a negative stereotype and negative vision of mental health because mental health can essentially go tell on you. If you say something, even if you don't say it seriously, you know, Um, and that's a problem. And it's a problem we haven't figured out. I don't know how we're going to figure it out Um, Mm -hmm. because they've they've taken some steps. So there something that I learned about a couple of years ago that I wasn't aware of is that affiliated with the VA, but not 
connected is they have these places called vet centers now where I think it's specifically for um, Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. Um, But you can go there, receive therapy covered through the VA, but the records do not go to the VA and it stays completely confidential. Okay. Um, Yeah. And I, I, I don't know how widespread they are. I know that there is one here in Buffalo, um, but it's kind of this hidden secret. Like I, I don't even know how I found out about it, but it wasn't when I needed help, you know, like they're not widely publicized. Um, and there's a lot of nonprofits. So I'm actually just recently got voted. I, I, imposter syndrome think they think I'm somebody that I'm not, but I got voted onto the board of directors for a, wow. uh, a nonprofit. I know. Right. Very, um, quite a big deal. Um, <laughs> joking. um, for a nonprofit, it's called the veteran one stop here in Buffalo and they help veterans get linked up with therapy. Um, and there, there's a lot of programs across, across the country that are working to offer therapy, um, you know, completely disconnected from the VA, anything like that. And a lot of the programs will provide it for free. Um, there's a one organization called Given Hour um, that's nationwide, and they, they do free therapy for veterans. That's completely, uh, it's a nonprofit. It's not affiliated with the VA, nothing like that. Um, completely confidential, you know, so they're, they're starting to, to offer ways recognizing that this is a real issue, you know, and the stigma, even, even after people get out, you know, I I know there's a lot of stigma, especially if you have a security clearance, you know, you're not wanting to risk losing that, even if, you know, your, your time in the military is, is finished. Because some of those jobs rely on that security clearance. Yeah. And it's tough to get and work all that paperwork through. And if you still have it, when you leave, yeah, that, that's a really easy way of sliding into a job at some of these big companies like Boeing, Lockheed exactly. Martin, and all that. And then you're talking about somebody's livelihood. Yeah, and they're not going to risk that. You know, they lose that well, piece of paper, and it's their career. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot of stress. People don't realize it's how so much, much stress that is because, yeah. you know, that'd be like a med. Think think about it like this: if a medical doctor was told, "Hey, you know." You know, you, you said this in counseling the other day. We're gonna have to take your medical license away. We're not taking right? your degree away. You can. Uh-huh. You're you're still a doctor. You can't legally practice. Yeah. Good luck. You're, you're unemployable. Yeah. You still call yourself doctor, whatever. Right. You can't you can't well, make money off of it for a living? That's a. It's heavy. That, yeah. That's heavy. I mean, and that's gonna keep you. I wouldn't fucking say shit either. Yeah, like, that's no, tough. No. I mean. And so, that's the reality of it. That's what we're working with. And so I think that's why, so what I, so after I got done with my um, bachelor's degree, somebody that I, I was in school with then was on the voc rehab program. And so, cause I'm, I've got my disability and he's like, Oh, have you considered, you know, applying for that? I'm like, Oh, well, I, I'm using my GI bill. I can't, I can't do voc rehab. Like, you know, I thought you couldn't do both. And he's like, no, you can, you can use both. And I'm like, huh? Um, <laughs> and so, He's like, yeah, like go submit the thing online. And I'm like, okay, it's not going to hurt anything. Cause I knew I needed at least a master's to, to practice and, and be a therapist. Um, and so I applied, went in, did the interview and what I know now seems like I kind of captured lightning in a bottle, not sure how, but somehow not only did I get approved 
for the voc rehab program with three months remaining on my GI bill, um, they gave me a waiver and approved an entire PhD. Um, so it's completely funding my whole thing, like best Christmas present I ever received in my life in May. <laughs> you know, it was, I cried walking out of there. I'm talking about crying a lot this podcast. <laughs> Very emotional, apparently. Um, <laughs> but my basically running platform when I applied to my PhD program was wanting to dig into this aspect of, of getting out of the military, you know, of this, you know, emotional side of the mental health side. And then really my goal is to a try to just talk about this shit, you know, to try to normalize it. And it was because I think if we can normalize it and we can tackle it from a offensive position, as opposed to this reactionary defensive, like, oh, fuck, okay, how do we stop somebody when they're ready to commit suicide? You know, like, the way we stop people from committing suicide is by attacking it three years before people get to that point. You know, it's by talking about this stuff. It's by normalizing the experiences. It's by attempting to destigmatize getting help yeah. and giving people options yeah. for receiving help that isn't going to risk their career, that isn't going to risk everything that they're depending on in their life when they get out, you know, and it's mm -hmm. whether that's just creating more safe spaces, you know, within the community generally for people to come talk, you know, whether it's promoting things like give an hour and in, in different programs where you can get professional help without that fear of it getting back to people who might punish you for it. Yeah. You know, it's, or just recognizing like, my experience, I think, you know, six months after I got out on my bed crying, like, I don't, it would have been so different if I had even had like a seed planted at some point that said like, hey, you're like, you're not alone like this. You might experience this because then I might have gotten help then, or I might have even considered the fact that there was help available. I never even thought about the fact that there would be anything to be able to help me because I didn't think this was a normal thing. Like I thought it was just me. So why would I be looking for help for something that was only me? Because yeah. clearly there is no help. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that was my mindset then. And, and I think, you know, if we can catch people and I mean, it's like the same thing with a wound, you know, if, if you can cleanse it and take care of it immediately, it's going to heal way better than if you ignore it and it gets infected and you end up, you know, down the line, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. We got to grab people before they hit the fork in the road. Well, yes. before they hit the fork in the road mm -hmm. and, and are forced, you know, a lot of people don't realize that you're forced to make a decision and yeah. your emotions in your mental state at the time often can force you um, to make, you know, a poor decision and right. that's why we lose people every day you know it doesn't yeah. happen to everybody but it does happen to people um so yeah i agree i think we gotta we gotta hit that before people are getting there and it's hard but um i've seen a lot lately in people i've talked to you know people used to say you know six months to a year before you're getting out you need to be thinking about these things I've been meeting a lot of people lately that are in that 18 to 24 month window that are like, yeah, 
I'm going to retire. I'm going to get out in the next two years. So I'm going to, I'm starting now. And I think what's really helped that is the DOD doing the skill bridge. So now you have the six months and then there's a, there's several other programs that are coming online and that are online now that are very similar Mm -hmm. to where we're capturing people six months, you know, anywhere from six months to a couple of months before they're getting out to start having conversations like what me and you are having right now. Plus yeah. the resume building interviews and stuff like that. You know, you have, you have great places like salute to suit that is giving away free suits. You know, you have vets mm-hmm. to industry, you have veterati, you have, uh, you named a couple as well, um, yeah. that are doing great things to capture people before they get out. Um, Absolutely. And I yeah, think that's definitely big. echoing like B2I, so Vets to Industry, they've been doing just, I mean, they're on fire right now. Highly recommend anybody who's either out or, you know, not even think about getting out, just going to get out at some point. You know, they're amazing. Um, Veterati is really great. I, I love Veterati yeah. for people who aren't familiar with it um, because you can set up one-on-one phone calls with veterans and you can sort by what industry they're in, what branch they were in. There's a whole bunch of different ways that you can kind of find whoever you're looking for. Um, and that was a big, so about two years ago, I think I, I discovered Veterati and I got linked up with a uh, Dr. Destiny Preet, who's shout out to her. She's incredible. Um, she's a PhD as well in, in army veteran. And so in just being able to connect with people who look like what you think you might want your life to look like. Yeah. Yeah, I think is is really incredible, and and getting those connections like that, you know. Um, if you're not using Veterati, you need to. <laughs> you're wrong. For yeah, <laughs> fix yourself. You ain't living right. Uh, for <laughs> one, it's totally free. And it's free. Yep, and, and everybody's volunteering their time too. Like nobody's yeah. getting paid on the mentor side either. No, and you can be a mentor and a mentee, so you can yeah. do both. Um, totally free. All you're doing is giving up your time, but it has a scheduler on there. So you can schedule how often you want to be a mentor. So you don't really, if you're a veteran, you don't have an excuse. You need to go to Veterati right now. You need to sign up for it. Even if it's Mm -hmm. just a mentee or even if it's just a mentor, you don't have to do both. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, Um, I do, I do more mentoring than I do being getting mentored you know, mentored myself. Yeah, but, um, I mean, I think it's what phase of your journey you're in. Absolutely. You know? If you yeah. are getting out of the military, whether you're retiring, you're, you know, you're discharged, you're medically retired, whatever the case is, um, you need to jump on Veterati because you can filter it and find somebody who is your carbon copy. Yeah. And you can, you can schedule a call with them and they can tell you exactly how they did it. And they can drop organization after organization, name after name, and, and set you up. I mean, this is like having the answers to the test, and you're not willing. And they're telling you to cheat. <laughs> you know, here's the test. And it's okay if you here's cheat. It's encouraged. Cheat. We, yeah, cheat on this test, and you and you go, I'm good. No thanks. No, no thanks. Absolutely. No, I never suffer. Yeah, do yeah. not do that. There's, <laughs> There's too much stuff out there. So, you know, you're not alone at all. No. You're not alone. Anybody who's listening to this, you're not alone. There's way too much, you know, out there. Organizations, individuals, programs, you're not alone. Absolutely no. not. Um, 
I think that's and a I big will say takeaway. I feel hypocritical because I've started my better audio profile as a mentor, but I have not completed it. So I that's my call to get my ass on there too. <laughs> but um, the other one that was really has been a game changer for me in a surprising way has just been LinkedIn broadly. Yeah. Um, I started getting more active after my veterati call with Destiny. Um, I got more active on LinkedIn, been about two years. And that has just exploded my connections, you know, yeah. and I'm not on there. I'm not looking like that was my um, belief before I got involved was that, oh, it's only for like, if you're looking for a job, you know, that's the only reason you just go on there and like upload your resume, quote unquote, on your profile. And like, that's how you get a job. And that's the only thing that's good for um, but I found, you know, particularly in this, the space that I'm in, in this like veteran transition space, which I think all veterans should be connected to on some level, um, there's a lot of great information being shared and yeah. the veterans who are on LinkedIn are so open to helping, you know, and even if it's nothing to do with, I'm looking for a job. If it's like, I mean, I'm very active on there. If anybody wants to talk about their transition, like find me, I'm Emily Knitter. I'm the only one. Um, and I try to share stuff that I'm finding research papers that I come across the work that I am doing, you know, work that other people are doing. Like it's, everybody is so supportive. And yeah. I think it's, it's a really good launching point. Cause you can search the hashtag. Um, I'm just getting on Instagram because I'm way behind the power curve with that. But apparently there's a lot of good resources there. I mean, I think anything with social media, like any way you can find, I think our community is, is really, really strong in that. Yeah. Like we're, we want to help. Well, the pandemic, I think forced um, the hand for a lot of communities, um, especially on a platform like LinkedIn, where I think a lot of people, and you can look at the statistics on it, you know, how LinkedIn exploded, you know, during the pandemic. Um, a lot of people looked at it as just a job platform. You know, if I know I'm not going to use it until I'm to a point where I need to search for a job. And then people came to realize I can actually, I can, I can do a lot on LinkedIn that I didn't know I could do. And I think the pandemic really kind of forced the hand of that because I've seen it too. I've seen, you know, and, and now people post on there having nothing to do with jobs. It's just they're yeah. sharing their content. They're doing live mm -hmm. shows, talking about stuff. I do the live show every week with some friends of mine. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah, a great just... person is uh, Adam Bratz shares a lot of really great content um, related to the transition and kind of all those pieces. I mean, there's so many. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're, the stuff you share, I mean, everything. Like, there's so many awesome people on there just yeah. wanting to help change the conversation. Yeah. I think that's a big... Uh, a big part of it and um i know that's what you've been up to and kind of you know helping people through that transition but um you know we've been at this for over an hour now can you believe that <laughs> oh my gosh it's it's a i could talk about this for about 18 years so yeah. <laughs> i feel like we're scratching the surface yeah so um be respectful of your time but before we go um where can people connect with you to find out more about this transition and how you're helping and the kind of the emotional side, where can they contact you and link up with you at? Sure. Absolutely. So right now, honestly, the best place is LinkedIn. Um, it's where I'm most active. Um, it's where I'm posting the most. I'm, I'm working on 
probably trying to develop a more of like a formal landing page where I can share the resources that I'm finding in a way that are easier to find than just going back on posts. Um, but right now that's the best place. Um, I, I work with a research group out of the VA um, and we're conducting a couple different studies right now related to everything that we've been talking about today. Um, and I've got links to, there's one active study that's just like an internet survey. Um, I've got a link to that on my page and we're also doing, a kind of an ambitious project. So we're calling it the, the veteran life story interviews. And we have this very long, it's about three hours, um, interview that we've developed. That's really kind of capturing a holistic picture of each person's experiences, you know, before the military, during and after, and, you know, really trying to look at the different themes that come up within the person's individual story and then across all the veterans' stories to try to be able to help this, you know, as, you know, as we kind of talked about earlier in the more like proactive sense, like, okay, what, you know, where can we intervene? Where can we make a difference? Where can we kind of use this to help change programs and policies in a way that's going to get upstream of a lot of these issues that we have now. Um, Yeah. And so, but LinkedIn's the best way to kind of get involved with any of that stuff, you know, uh, ask me any questions. I'm an open book. Um, I'm happy to talk to people. So, yeah. So there you go. Find her Emily Knitter on LinkedIn. K-N-I-T-T-E-R. Come find me. Yes. Yeah. Find her, uh, bug her about questions. Um, obviously, you have some really cool stuff going on. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it, um, staying in touch. And, um, you know, I appreciate you coming on today for sure. Absolutely. Thanks for nerding out with me about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs>